0: God is so great and merciful. Thanks be to Him. So good morning and welcome to Renew again. My name is Dallas. Thank you for joining us for worship. And we are going to continue on in our series in Ezra. And uh, thankful that uh, Troy was able to preach last week. Wasn't that a great message? Yeah, amen, on suffering. And now we're going to talk about idolatry. So it'd be wonderful follow-up, so. All right, so if you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word, please turn to Ezra 9. We are actually going to read the first five verses of Ezra 9, and then we're going to drop down into Ezra 10 and read the first 12 verses, and then uh, we'll end the service by reading Ezra's prayer of repentance. And Ezra 9, starting at verse 1, reads, When these things had been done... "'The Jewish leaders came to me and said, "'Many of the people of Israel, "'and even some of the priests and Levites "'have not kept themselves separate "'from the other peoples living in the land. "'They have taken up the detestable practices "'of the Canaanite, Hittites, Prezites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. "'For the men of Israel have married women "'from these people and have taken them "'as wives for their sons. "'So the holy race has become polluted "'by these mixed marriages.' Worse yet, the leaders and officials have led the way in this outrage. When I heard this, I tore my cloak and my shirt, pulled the hair from my head and beard, and sat down, utterly shocked. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel came and sat with me because of the outrage committed by the return exiles, and I sat there, utterly appalled, until the time of the evening sacrifice. At this time of the sacrifice, I stood up from where I sat and Morning, with my clothes torn, I fell to my knees and lifted my hands to the Lord, my God. Now if you turn to Ezra 10, verses 1 through 12, and that reads, While Ezra prayed and made this confession, weeping and lying face down on the ground in front of the temple of God, a very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, and children gathered and wept bitterly with him. Then Shankenai, son of Jelhal, descendant of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God, for we have married these pagan women of the land. But in spite of this, there is hope for Israel. Let us now make a covenant with our God to divorce our pagan wives and to send them away with their children. We will follow the advice given by you and by the others who respect the commands of God, of our God. Let it be done according to the law of God. Get up. For it is your duty to tell us how to proceed in settings through straight. We are behind you, so be strong and take action. So Ezra stood up and demanded that the leaders and the priests and the Levites and all the people of Israel swear that they would do what Shanachi had said, and they all swore a solemn oath. Then Ezra left the temple, left them the front of the temple of God, and went to the room of Jeronon, son of Elisha. And he spent the night there without eating or drinking anything. He was still in mourning because of the unfaithfulness of the returned exiles. Then a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem that all the exiles should come to Jerusalem. Those who failed to come within three days would, if the leaders and elders so decided, forfeit all their property and be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within three days, all the people of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. This took place on December 19th, and all of the people were sitting in the square before the temple of God. They were trembling both because of the seriousness of the matter and because it was raining. Then the priest stood and said to them, you have committed a terrible sin by marrying pagan women, and you have increased Israel's guilt. So now confess your sin to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and do what he demands. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from these pagan women. Then the whole assembly raised their voice and answered, yes you are right. We must do as you say. A brief prayer. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to come together in this building and worship you. Thank you for the opportunities that we have to worship you throughout the week in our car and in our home and on our walk or whatever we're doing. And now that we get to come together corporately, we pray that you bless the other services that proclaim your name In the churches in this town and around the world, Lord, we thank you that we are a small part of your community, of your kingdom. So, Lord, will you take this uh, time to prepare our hearts to receive your word through your spirit? Will you uh, just show us the way that you want as we talk about repentance, Lord? We thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy, and we don't want to take that lightly. I just pray, Lord, that uh, whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. Use me as you see fit. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So mourning and repentance is not only a beautiful thing, but it is a thing that is so very necessary it's so necessary for us as Christians to believe in mourning and repentance. But I think both mourning and repentance is really only a sign of maturity. Not only is it a sign of maturity, but it's also a sign that you haven't become jaded of this world. Meaning, when you become aware of sin, how do you respond? How do you respond when there's sin? Not necessarily your sin, your family sin, your spouse's sin, your kid's sin, but when you hear of sin, how do you respond? What, what, what's your go-to? How, how, what do you feel? Do you feel bad? Do you feel sorry? Or perhaps, maybe sometimes, even like me, I think, well, that's just the way the world is. That's, of course, you're supposed to expect it. It's just too bad. But sin should always break our heart. Always, we shouldn't get used to sin. It should break our heart. But I think, yet when when we are in mourning and we repent, it should not be seen in light of shame or embarrassment. I think it's part of where we're at in our culture, and our culture specifically as Christians, Western Christians. That we do a lot of our mourning on our own. We do a lot of our repentance on our own. And that's very important, but I would suggest that we could do better corporately. And I'm not just talking about renew or people of renew. I'm just talking about in general. I think we 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 mourn by ourselves, not that we don't call our friend anymore. We don't call people to pray for us or, or we're sad. Not that we don't do that, but I don't think that we necessarily do it on a large scale. For example, in the last three weeks, I have received about 12 separate prayer requests. And I'm not making fun of you if you sent me a prayer request. But within some of these prayer requests, it was just you pray, just you share, with your wife. I don't want everyone to know. Just you do it. Which is great. I'm glad to. And some things do need to be private. I don't think every little thing, I don't think every time you fight with your spouse, we should parade you up here. You and your wife, you and your husband should share. That'd get old. And I don't want to repent every Sunday morning about all the mean things I've done to Natalie. No, I'm just kidding. But I do. But you know what I mean? If we just did that, it's not about that. But when there's something that grieves the Lord so bad, we should share it. But there's shame. What will other people think if they know I struggle with and fill in the blank? Now, if you're anything like me, I'm sorry, but if you're anything like me, you probably already thought of a sinner, two or three or four. And you're just afraid that I might look you in the eye whenever I happen to glance your way. But I really think we tend to minimize when we are mourning and when we repent, we keep it private. We have become so self sufficient that our faith, which is based on relationships, the first relationship, of course, that being with Christ, the second relationship is that being with one another, fellow believers. But we've become so self sufficient that we feel like we got it. A couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, I mentioned who here would rather call AAA even though your neighbor's right across the street? Who here's tried to move a couch all by themselves? Yes, me too. I broke our first couch that we ever had because I thought, I got it. I did not have it at all. And that is funny, and it's ridiculous, and I could still see the, oh, no, look, on Allie's face as I drop it, and it shattered, and it broke, and it was great. But I think in our Christian walk, we tend to do this. We become self-sufficient, or we rely just on our spouse. That's what life groups are for, so we could do life together. And yes, I do know that within life group, there can be some people who would take up all of the time and just share everything, and you're embarrassed. You, you don't want to look at them. And I'm not saying just say everything, but we've become so self-sufficient that we have, I think, limited our relationship with one another. And I think in some aspects, it's held us back in our growth with our relationship with Christ. Of course, this is a general assessment. Some do it better than others, but generally, I think, just as a Western American church We read scripture like this this morning, and it's awkward, and it's uncomfortable, and you're probably thinking, well, I wonder how Dallas is going to handle that whole divorce thing. So is Dallas. I'm just thankful that Troy preached last week to give me an extra week to go through it. And really, the, the, the heart of the matter is, really, this is the sin of choice for the Israelites. Marrying these pagan women. I guess I should have started. I had a little note on my paper that I wrote down. Just in case I don't say it, I'm totally against divorce. If it doesn't come out that way, then I've done a poor job. I'm against divorce. Obviously, there's biblical outlines of when you can get divorced. However, I have seen multiple couples have many grounds of biblical reason to get divorced and stay together, and they have thriving marriages. Praise God for his grace and mercy. But this story of Ezra that we've read 9 and 10 is not just about divorce. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the background. This is a story about idolatry. This is a story of these new generation, if you will, of Israelites coming into the promised land, part two of two, if you will, This is the second wave of people coming in, and they've gone back and done exactly what they did that got them in trouble in the first place. I've mentioned this a couple of times this week with some friends, with four or five friends differently, just because it's been on my mind. Before I commit a sin to you or on you, against you, I have already committed a sin against God. And, and the simple reason is, is before this, this horizontal sin happens, I've already had this vertical sin where I know what God wants and I don't do it and then I sin against you. And that's the sin of choice here for the Israelites. So as we walk through this, just consider what is it about idolatry that is so appealing to the human flesh, and I would suggest every sin, I can't think of one that's not, but I'll say 99.9% of all sins start with idolatry. It started in the garden, Adam and Eve. God was very clear on not what to do, and we can blame Satan, we can blame the serpent, but ultimately, oh yeah, I know better. Has anyone here ever, maybe not out loud, but said to yourself, oh, I know better, and they ate those words? after they've sinned. I'm raising like everything. So hopefully what we'll see is the sin of choice, if you will, of idolatry by these Jewish people marrying pagan women. Hopefully we'll see why it's so important not only to have a relationship with Christ, but also repentance. Repentance to come back to him. So again, we will cover the specific sin, this divorce, them marrying these pagan women. We'll go through the historical background, hopefully. And yet, at the heart of these last two chapters is three main subjects I wrote down. The first one is identifying the sin. Ezra identified the sin. The second one is mourning over the sin. He mourned over the sin. And the third one is repent of the sin. So a little bit of the background, if you recall, I mentioned that Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are not in chronological order, unless you go on your Bible app or you get a Bible that goes in chronological order. So that that tends to be a little bit tricky, especially for us linear thinkers. If you're an engineer, you don't like this. If you're a literal genius, you don't mind it because you can comprehend. I don't know how you do it, but you do it. But if you you consider this, just think about this. The Hebrew authors wrote more theme by theme, situation by situation, and less about uh, having this organized, linear process. So when we read in verse 1, when these things had been done, the question may be, well, what things had been done? And technically, what had been done was Nehemiah, the end of seven through Nehemiah 937. And when we get through Nehemiah, we'll get there. But this is when Nehemiah opens up the Bible, their Bible, the Torah, and they read the scripture for the first time together as a community. And, And I don't want to do a spoiler alert, but They spend a long time together listening to the Word of God for the first time in decades, read corporately. So after they read this, when these things had been done, the Jewish leaders came up to me, Ezra says, and said, many of the people of Israel and even some of the priests and Levites have not kept themselves separated from the other peoples living in the land. And then they name them off, these detestable practices. Canaanites, Hittites, Prezites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. And at first, it may, be, it may look like, oh, they snitched. But really what it is, is God was stirring the hearts of the leaders and said, we know that you're the second leader bringing in the second wave. Dribble brought in the first. You have now brought in the second. We want to let you know because we are reminded because at some point he read Deuteronomy about not marrying pagan women. But, but look at this very specifically in verse uh, 1 there. It says, Many of the people of Israel, even some of the priests and Levites the leaders the religious leaders have not kept themselves separated from the other people's living in the land they have taken up the detestable practices and then it lists them off the detestable practices is idolatry and if you remember the israelites were in exile for 70 years number 1 because of idolatry number 2 because they did not keep a sabbath that's scary they did not keep a sabbath So here we are, he comes back, Ezra comes back, and now they read the scripture, and now all of a sudden there's a problem. So what are they going to do? So one caution that I I would, I I try to keep, and I'll I'll share it with you, is I have to be careful that I don't read my culture, our culture, into their culture, because I'll miss it. Now for for many, many years, people have used Ezra 9 and 10 to justify why people of different nationalities, race, can't marry. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with idolatry. So we must let the Bible speak to us in its day and not try to force it to our day and our norms. The Word of God is true and real, and it applies today. But we can't read, and Dallas said... These things, or fill in your name and apply it to your situation. We have to filter through the heart of what God is meaning to say. Now, in, in our mind, just try to remember this is 900 years after Moses received the Ten Commandments and the other laws. 900 years. Ezra is not trying to say, hey, let's go back 900 years and let's go, go back to the wilderness days. He's not saying this, he's saying, let's go back to God. Let's go back to it. He wasn't trying to go back and change society to do a medieval for them to a mosaic time. His attempt was to go back to the fullness and wholeness of God's teaching, of God's heart. That's why contemporary now, Ezra's contemporary to Moses, he's trying to apply what God desires to now. Now, for us as Christians in 2022... I look back, if that was 900 years ago, what would be 900 years ago for us? 900 years ago, Henry I was the king of England. Who wants to go back to that? The Catholic church had just broke off from the Orthodox church, or the, or, or the Catholics would say the Orthodox church broke up, whatever. The great schism of 1054. That happened 100 years. 900 years ago, The Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church were two separate churches. Protestant Church wasn't even around. The Second Crusades were going on. This is when the big Gothic churches were being built. Looks cool, but kind of creepy. So do we want, have you noticed, we don't have a Gothic-looking church building. I mean, it'd be kind of cool, but you get the point. So whenever we're trying to apply the truth of God's word today, we don't want to go back 900 years or back to the Old Testament or even it's been popular to say, let's go back to the days of Acts. The heart of it, yes, but really I don't want to run for my life every seven days from Rome. And just so I can belabor the point a little bit, anyone still have a tracks in their car? that work? (laughs) Right? When was the last time someone put a DVD and watched a movie? When was the last time you had to use your pencil to fix a cassette tape because the (laughs) hole came out? Right? So it's not going back to a time. It's going back to the heart of the principle of what God desires. So with that in mind, let's go into this a little bit. So the first thing that we see is they identified the sin. Ezra identified the sin. He identified the sin because, as I mentioned, in Nehemiah, he had spent all that time reading corporately. And you can go ahead and read that on your own, or we'll get there in about five weeks. But Nehemiah, the end of seven through nine, he reads, and somewhere along the line they get to Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4 reads this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are about to enter and occupy, he will clear away many nations ahead of you. Recognize the names. The Hittites, the Gerishites, Amorites, the Canaanites, the Prisites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaties with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and your sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods." then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and he will quickly destroy you. So at some point when Ezra was reading this, the Jewish leaders probably got their highlighter out and said, uh-oh, we better, we better discuss this. We better look into it. We better let someone know what's going on. So what was going on is is really the the reason why the Israelites were marrying these women were really for a handful of things. One, it was for land. At that time when they came into Jerusalem to take over, if you remember that uh, when King Nebuchadnezzar took over and destroyed them, they would move around a whole bunch of people to mix them all up. There was already people there that had already been established, Canaanites, Hittites, on and on and on. In order for the the Israelites to get land, so they thought, they thought, well, we have to make an agreement. And you see this in movies and books all the time whenever you're looking at a time period piece. Arrange marriages, so that way France and England will get along. So that way, and the list goes on and on. So that's one of the reasons. The second one is they were just afraid. They were afraid they were going to be attacked. Only 10% of everyone who was supposed to come showed up. And third... And the word describing in verse 2, it says, sorry, going back to Ezra 9, verse 2, it says, for the men of Israel have married women from these people and have taken them as wives for their sons. Stop there. That word, taking them as wives, is the same word that's used in Proverbs to call women a harlot or a prostitute. And if you remember, there's four different times, I think I counted correctly, in Proverbs it says, do not invite a prostitute into your home. To live among you. I'm paraphrasing, but you know that. So essentially what they were doing is they were having prostitutes in their home or second wives. But they really weren't wives. They would just make a deal and say, hey, we'll, we'll take in your daughter and we'll have this piece of land. So that's what was going on. Then the concern was, if you keep reading, so the holy race has been become polluted by these mixed marriages. Now, when we read this, holy race, mixed marriages, if we look at it from our American lens, that's very racist, that's very dark. We can flash back to a time period throughout history that was bad. It's not about racism. This specifically is completely about bringing in the Messiah through the Israelites. The second, the mixed marriages is specifically not race and race. It's bringing together two different religions. There are a handful of people that I know that one was a Christian who married a Buddhist. One was a, one was a Catholic who married a Jehovah Witness. And I can go on and on, and I'm sure you know. That's hard. God really meant it when he said, do not become unequally yoked. But what was happening with these Israelites who were taking in these women is that then they started to worship whatever they were worshiping, these false gods. And that's what was happening. And if you've noticed that what you do in moderation, your children tend to do in excess, right? I love peanut butter. My children are monsters, and that's just peanut butter. But what they're doing is, is they knew, God knew, that it would only take two generations for the Israelites to completely walk away from faith if they kept this. The Israelites were, had actually never technically been radically racially pure to begin with. There's a whole list. We'll get to that in a minute. Well, Solomon, he didn't marry all Israelites. David, Saul, Boaz, Joseph, Moses. In Boaz's case, Joseph's case, they uh, uh, became followers of Jehovah. And actually, when we read this, and and it's so difficult to put our lens in it, there was only 110 cases of this happening. And the majority of it was the religious leaders. Secondly, they were scared of what God might do because this was a blatant sin. And at this time, if you remember burnt offerings and grain offerings and their harvest offerings, there were all these different offerings to make up for sin. However, there was no sin offering available for intentional sin. You just had to take it. Whatever God decided. So when when Ezra was reading this and the leaders came and said, "Uh uh-oh, God's going to get us. So they identified the sin. Many Jewish commentaries, specifically those who are followers of Christ, explain it. That it was such a big deal because it was all about idolatry. People were being led astray. And we also have to remember, too, what a true marriage is. A biblical, spiritual marriage is a covenant made between a man and a woman and their God, Christ. The guarantor of the covenant is God. Most of the Jewish historians suggested that they didn't even go through any kind of marital uh, ceremony or covenant. They just did a handshake deal, a modernized handshake deal. Now, I know I'm getting into semantics and and the way that we live in modern times, um, and I'm not discounting this, but people can get married at the courthouse. And if you did, God bless you. But it wasn't, and I was looking into this, it wasn't until about the uh, 1100s, 1200s when government got involved in marriages. Marriage was only intended to be something holy done at a church or a temple for the Jewish people. And I'm not discrediting if you got married at a courthouse, but now the government has, has moved in. I have to sign the little paper saying, yep, I was there. Yep, they paid their $57. Yep, they're married. Yep, they can file joint taxes. I mean, it's about money. And the reason why the government came in is because they were starting to take over uh, whenever there was a divorce. The church didn't do a good job historically of doing that. But why? Why is this so important? Why is this? Why Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4? Why did God care about this? Why did God, it sounds so harsh to us, but why? And the reason simply is he was protecting them. He knew what would happen to them if they did this. They would be led astray. They would turn away from God. They will give in to false gods. The purity of the bloodline has been an attack that Satan used until Jesus came. He thought that he could, if he could mess up the bloodline, then we couldn't have a Messiah, a Messiah, fooled him wrong. The promise of the Savior through the bloodline, that's why whenever you read through Matthew, you get the genealogy the evil one always wants to interrupt God's plan. It's never been successful. But when God tells us to do something or not to do something, it's not because he's a mean God. It's because there's a reason. There's always a reason. And it always starts with love. He loves us so much that he doesn't want us to go down a destructive path. And even when we're considering divorce, because ultimately at the very end of Ezra, it just kind of ends. It gives a long list. I didn't read all the names. It gives a list of all of the people who had to get divorced. Or technically, send them away is what it's called. Send them back to their families because they weren't married in the first place. But when Paul in the New Testament talks about divorce in 1 Corinthians 7... You may recall that First Corinthians seven, whenever he talks about if you're a believer and you have a non-believing spouse, don't leave them. Specifically, and this is and this is just an attempt for us not to put our current lenses onto the past. Specifically, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, and what was happening at the time is that all these Jewish people were co- becoming Christians, but not all of their spouses. So what was happening is two Jewish people who were married, a husband and wife were married. One would come and believe in the Messiah. The other one wouldn't. And what they were trying to do is, if you don't believe in Jesus, I'm leaving you. And Paul was like, hold on. You can't do that. He goes on to talk about they will be saved through your faithfulness. So we're not Jewish in here. I, and if someone's Jewish in here, I apologize. I'm not assuming... I don't know if anyone in here is Jewish. But for us, how do we apply 1 Corinthians 7 to us if we're not Jewish, if we're Gentiles? We simply drop the fact that we're Jewish and we keep on to his promises. That's how God's word continues to live and apply today. And second, the other other important part is whenever you're reading through the Old Testament and New Testament and it says the unbeliever, it does not mean atheists. Atheist didn't come about until the 16th century, somewhere in France, I think. When it says a non-believer, it simply should say a pagan believer, someone who believes another God. So again, when the Bible talks about non believer they're talking about a non-believer in, uh, in, uh, according to the Jewish customs. So a non-believer was not an atheist, but someone that believed in a false God. And that was part of their nationality. So, how do we apply this? What does this mean? So, if Ezra read through the Bible, and that's how he was able to identify the sin, what was his second response? Mourning over the sin. He mourned. Verse 3, he says, when I heard this, I tore my cloak and my shirt. I pulled the hair out of my head and out of my beard. Ouch. And sat there utterly shocked. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel came and sat with me because of this outrage committed by the return of exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of evening sacrifice. Evening sacrifice was at 3 p.m., so he, and the first one was noon, so for three hours, he just, he couldn't believe it. Now, the Eastern culture, even today, uh, generally speaking, in Israel, when they're praying, they have their hands up and they're standing and they're loud, but when they are just outraged, they rip their garments, pull out their hair. They are grieving and they are mourning outwardly, so other people know. Now, if I was if I was grieved by some sin and I started ripping off my shirt and pulling out my hair and my beard, someone would probably come and tackle me <laughs> to prevent me from doing that. But he mourns over it. He is saddened to hear it. He was utterly shocked. He can't believe it happened. You mean we're going to sin the same way we've sinned before? We're really going to do it again? Then it's prayer of repentance and we'll end the service with that. But let's jump down to Ezra 10 and see what happens. Part of mourning, mourning is so important. It's so important to mourn over sin. You don't have to rip your clothes, pull out your hair, or any of that. But you should mourn. It should grieve you. It should bother you. But look what happens. While Ezra was praying in Ezra 10, and made this confession, weeping and lying face down on the ground in front of the temple of God, a very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, and children, gathered and wept bitterly. They saw what was going on, and they too started mourning. Then... Uh, Verse two, then Shekathah, son of Jethel, a descendant of Elam, said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God. He agreed with him. For we have married these pagan women of the land. They identified it as the nation of Israel has done it, although only a handful of people had done it. But in spite of this, there is hope for Israel. Let us now make a covenant with God to divorce our pagan wives and send them away with their children. When he's talking about making a covenant, he's referring to, let's go back to what we already know. And then they divorce or send away their wives back to the lands. We will follow this advice given by you and others who respect the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law of God. In verse 4, it's so important. Get up, for it is your duty to tell us how to proceed in these unsettling things straight. Mourning over sin but we can't stay in just mourning. Because if we simply stay in mourning, then we won't make any action. Either we'll need a friend to tell us, a prayer partner to tell us, it's time to repent. Has anyone in, in here ever been sorry for a sin? Felt really bad about it for a day, a week, a month, and then did it again? Because you were only Sorry. You didn't repent. So now his friend tells him, get up, it's time. So part of mourning, and I'm not going to tell you how long it takes to mourn. Part of mourning is then responding and making it right. And that's part of repenting of sin. And that's what they did. So then they go on and they call everybody together. At that night, it says in verse 6, in the middle, it said he spent the night there. He, was, he wouldn't drink or eat anything. He was still in mourning because of the unfaithfulness of the return of the exiles. Then a proclamation was made through Judah and Jerusalem that all everyone had to come within three days if he didn't show up. We were going to take your possessions. This is how serious we're taking Now, if you consider that, if I called an all-church meeting and said, you don't show up in three days, I get your stuff, you're like, come and get it, bro. Like, I know, I know how that works. But this was so serious, this was such a sin, a corporate sin, that he wanted everyone to be there to deal with it. So, verse 9, within three days, all the people showed up, they gathered, and it gives the date, December 19th. They were sitting there. It was cold. They spent four and a half months eventually to figure out what they were going to do. Sometimes, just a side note, and I'm guilty of this, in my attempt to repent, I'm too hasty in my response. Not that I was too hasty to stop the sin, but sometimes I over-exaggerated in what I was going to do about it. So within three days, they, they, they came together. They took four and a half months. They, verse 10, it says, Then Ezra and the priest stood and said to them, You have committed a terrible sin by marrying a pagan woman. You have increased Israel's guilt. So now confess your sin. He wants everyone who did it to confess their sin. And they do it. And they eventually separate and they, the land of these pagan women. And when I first read that, or the first seven times I read it, the last couple of weeks, I thought, Well, it's unfair to these pagan women and their children. Like, that's not right. Where's God in that? God was there. It was sin. And he handled it. The Jewish commentators talk about how what they would do is any money that they would have gained or any land or any territory that they would have gained for having these women and children were given back. The Jewish tradition was four times over. Sometimes 10. That's why if you fast forward to the New Testament when Zacchaeus wants to come, but he's, he's, he, he's, a, he's cheated people. When the tax collectors have cheated people, and when they come to Christ, when, the, when confronted with Jesus, they say, we'll pay it four or ten times back. So they made it right. But they divorced these, women's, these women, although it was not technically a marriage, and they gave them back. The whole thing was about idolatry. By giving back all of this, they walked away from these false gods that they started to believe in and to follow. And repenting of sin is so important. And that's how Ezra ends. That's a. I told you at the very beginning, this is usually typically Ezra and Nehemiah's how to be a good leader, how to start a revival. But usually when people go through how to be a good leader and start a revival, they leave out Ezra 9. Because, well, that's not a great revival. It just shows how important it is to be right with God. And it's through his grace and mercy. And what we'll see when we get into Nehemiah, we'll see that God will bless this decision. Now, we could argue if they should have done separately, something differently, they should have been separated for a time, uh, should have tried to make them come to faith. I'm assuming that happened. And to be clear, if anyone in here is married to someone who's not a believer, I'm not suggesting, I'm not saying you should divorce. We've already covered that. Paul said not to. But for anyone in here who's considering getting married, what I told the students when I was a youth pastor is you chase after God as fast as you can and when you look around whoever's there with you marry that girl or that guy. But this all comes down to idolatry. They knew that they shouldn't but they did it anyways. They thought they knew better than God. So as we close I just thought I'd read what Ezra prayed to God. It is it is a wonderful prayer. We're going to receive communion at the end. We're going to have some guys come and pass you the communion so you don't have to get up. Hopefully everyone gets communion this time. Um, um, There's no requirements. We don't have membership or anything. The only requirement, I should say, there's one requirement. You do have to be a believer in Jesus Christ to receive communion. And then hold on to the elements and we'll receive it together. But let's listen to this prayer. Sorry, side note, my other note. After we uh, uh, have communion, I'm going to invite John and Linda Grover to come up so we can pray for them. I'll invite the leaders and elders and come, and if you want to come, we're going to pray over them. They're going to go back to Cambodia for a month. It's been two and a half years, I think, something like that, and uh, they need it, and uh, they're going to go serve the Lord there and the people there, so we're going to pray for them. And at the very end of it, if I do remember correctly, if there's anything that you feel like you need to repent of, do not be ashamed. I'd love to pray for you or find someone to pray for. Because really at the heart of this, of what was going on is Ezra knew we could no longer live this way. We just can't pretend that's not a big deal because sin is a big deal. So much so that Jesus had to die for. It. So with that, let's read Ezra 9, verse 9 through 15. And this is his prayer when he finds out. After he pulls out his hair and his beard and he rips his shirt, he says this. Sorry, at verse 8. It says, but now we have been given a brief moment of grace for the Lord our God has allowed a few of us to to survive as a remnant. He has given us security in this holy place. Our God has brightened our eyes and granted us some relief from our slavery. For we were slaves, but in his unfailing love, our God did not abandon us to our slavery. Instead, he caused the king of Persia to treat us favorably. He revived us so we could rebuild the temple of our God and repair its ruins. He has given us a proactive wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh, our God, what can we say after all of this? For once again we have been abandoned we have abandoned your commands your servants the prophets warned us when they said the land you are entering to possess is totally defiled by the detestable practices of the people living there from one end to the other the lands is filled with corruption don't let your daughters marry their sons don't take their daughters as wives for your sons don't ever Promote the peace and prosperity of those nations. If you follow these instructions, you will be strong. You will enjoy the good things the land produces. And you will leave this prosperity to your children forever. Now we are being punished because of our wickedness and our great guilt. But we have actually been punished for far less than we deserve. For you, our God, have have allowed some of us to survive as a remnant. But even so, we are again breaking your commands and intermarrying with people who do these detestable things. Won't your anger be enough to destroy us so that even this little remnant no longer survives? The Lord God of Israel, you are just. We come before you in our guilt as nothing but an escape remnant. Though in such a condition, none of us can stand in your presence. Let's pray. God, thank you that your grace and mercy abounds. Lord, I do pray that as we prepare to receive communion, that if there's anything going on, will you reveal it to us, Lord? It's probably not a stretch to think that you've already brought that to our mind, not just this morning, but through the week. Lord, thank you that we do not have to live in shame and guilt, that your grace abounds. Lord, let us not be ashamed to mourn in sin, in our sin and in the sin of others, but also let us not be afraid to repent, to return to you and to come to you. Lord, let us not hide. you. There's no shame in our relationship with you. Thank you for your word, thank you for the, the men and women of the Bible who've who are our heroes of the faith, as Hebrews mentions, that we can see that none of them were perfect except for your son, and yet their desire to return back to you time and time again. Let, it be, let that be our prayer. So regardless of how long it's been when we, uh, from the last time we've admitted our sin or repented of our sin or come full face to our sin, we just pray that it could be now. So Lord, as we sing a few more songs to you, Let it be a sweet aroma to you. Thank you for the breath in our lungs to sing out to you. And as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, we thank you for the ultimate sacrifice that all of this is possible because of your son. So Lord, I do especially pray for anyone who's feeling guilt. I pray that that guilt will manifest into repentance. Because in your word, you've come to save the world, but not to condemn it. So we thank you. We love you. We're excited to praise you some more. In Christ's name we pray, amen.